to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We return this morning to pick up where we left off at verse 8. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 8, that's at page 555 in your pew Bible, if that's uh, helpful for you. We're going to be taking a larger chunk of the text this morning because it seems clear that this longer pericope, this uh, longer section of um, Scripture forms a unit uh, ending as it begins with the observation that money, that is the love of money, the pursuit of money, cannot deliver satisfaction. Ever does the appetite remain insatiable, the desires unmet, the greedy thirst for more unslaked. The appetite is never satisfied with what has been accumulated. And we've heard the preacher on the point of wealth before, haven't we? And this is uh, the way the section begins and ends. And as is often the case in the Bible, when you come to a section of Scripture that begins and ends the same way, the real point of that part of Scripture is often found usually found somewhere right in the middle. And I think if you will pay close attention to the reading now, you'll see it too, how Colette has artfully highlighted and underscored the lesson of this text by placing it dead center in this paragraph, spotlighting it, as it were, between two dark patches on either side. As we uh, pray for the Lord's blessing on his word, I'm going to add just a couple uh, more matters of petition as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for blessing it uh, so wonderfully to us. We're mindful of a couple more uh, matters that require our prayer. Father, we thank you that Jeff is here this morning and that you sustained him through a very difficult week of affliction. We pray for wisdom and direction concerning his health answers and for your help and sustaining hand. We pray for Joelle, Aaron's uh, cousin, now in Louisville, and her baby. We ask that you will please be mightily at work in their uh, lives too, granting the help and healing that they need. You know them completely. You knit them both together in their mother's womb, so we commit them to you for your care. And once again, pray for your help as we turn to your word. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 8. We'll go on all the way through the ninth verse of chapter 6. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and also he has no burial, I say this, a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. If you've been following the conflict in Sudan that blew up a a week or so ago, then you're aware that the bombing and the killing and the fear and the looming and developing hunger and thirst of the poor in Khartoum and in the countryside is due essentially to a conflict between two military generals, Abdel Fattah Abraham and his Sudan Armed Forces versus Mohamed Dagalo and his Rapid Support Forces. Though they had been allies, these two, in a coup back in 2019 against former President Omar al-Bashir. 
They're now at one another's throats, grasping for power and supremacy at the cost of many, many lives. Both, of course, ascribe their lethal efforts to noble desires for Sudan's good. The motivation behind the conflict has been described as a lust for power on both men's parts, but it doesn't take a whole lot of research to discover that the underlying, mo underlying motives are also shaped, and perhaps predominantly, by greed. The worry on each man's part, along with their supporters, their hangers-on, is what will happen to their wealth if they lose. Under Degalo, the RSF has taken control, you see, over Sudan's western borders, giving him control over the region's gold mines, which produce some 40% of Sudan's exports measured annually in billions, with a B, billions of dollars. Now, why are we not surprised? when we follow the trail. You know what? Because the Bible's told us to expect this. Verse 8, do not be amazed at this matter. The lust to accumulate money and the greed-based zeal to protect and to maintain wealth seems to run rampant in government, regardless of what type of government it is. It's easy to identify in the, in the form that is communism, right? Where the state elite guarantee their enrichment by seizing property and assets. And it's never very far from military dictatorships, the likes of which seems to be developing in Sudan. But it's also more than detectable in democracies as well. Utopia, a utopian society, is simply not possible in this fallen world. And there is a very simple reason for that. It is because, as the Bible plainly teaches, men are universally corrupt and sinful. So the very best forms of government in the world recognize this fundamental fact and therefore create a system of checks and balances as the founding fathers of our nation did from the very beginning. But we're hardly surprised to find that greed and graft lie not so deep below the surface of our own government here at home too. The love of money is a devastating disease to which no one is completely immune. Well, Solomon takes it down from the governmental level to the level of individual people for the rest of this section so that we will not fail to apply the lessons carefully to ourselves. Basically, he's working here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to convince us of a lesson that seems actually to lie face up on the surface of humanity for anyone to see, but which remains so tenaciously tempting that it simply requires extensive exposition. The love of money, the desire to accumulate it, the expectation that hoarding lots of money must certainly bring happiness is a trap. It's a snare. 
into which many people fall to their ruin, including Christians. Paul wrote as much to young pastor Timothy, didn't he? This is a dark and destructive and dangerous path that is far too often followed because of a simple failure to heed the alarm that Scripture is so often and so clearly and so urgently raising. As Solomon is here. Essentially, the preacher is at pains here to paint for us a picture of the gloom and doom which the love of money always leads to in a human life. It isn't pretty, but it's necessary for us to hear because, as I say, no one is immune to this temptation. Didn't we just confess it, my brothers and sisters, a few minutes ago to the Lord from our hearts? We confessed our love of money. It's a temptation, I say, for all of us to which none of us is immune, rich or poor. And by the way, uh, this morning may I remind you that we are all among the former in that equation and not the latter. We are the rich people, globally speaking. Regardless of where you fall here in the U.S. on the relative scale, you are rich. You, you and I, we're the richest people in the world. And so this temptation is going to prove to you and to me a particularly sore one and acute. So here's the picture of what happens to the person who pursues wealth for wealth's sake, who pursues money out of love for money. We've already noticed how it corrupts government. On an individual level, notice first how the love of money steals one's ability to ever be satisfied with what he has, ever to be satisfied with what he has. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. You all remember the lyrics, right? Money can't buy me love. It can't. Neither can it buy you ultimate satisfaction, can it, or joy. The love of money puts a person on a hamster wheel, always running, 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 but never arriving. Or think of it this way. Seeking happiness in money or in what money can buy is, is much akin to addictive drugs, isn't it? That, that promise satisfaction and, and pleasure and relief and whatever, but never supply it and instead actually enslaves those people who go to it, driving them endlessly on to seek more of it and more and more and more. The human desire for it, as Walter Kaiser points out, always outruns acquisitions. No matter how great those acquisitions may be. You all remember John D. Rockefeller. You remember his famous answer to the question, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? Now, Rockefeller, who at the peak of his wealth had a network worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy, who owned about 90% of all the oil and gas industry of his time, who makes the rich guys, <laughs> the Gateses and the Buffets of our day, look like paupers, Remember how Rockefeller answered that question, how much 
money, sir, is enough. Remember what he said, just a little bit more. Such is the appetite for wealth and for, for money-loving people, whether you're a relatively rich person or relatively poor. Feed that appetite as much as you can. You will always want more. As Horace once observed, greed is not decreased either by surplus or by shortage. This is the theme with which Ecclesiastes finishes this section as well as we've Read 6 verse 7, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Why does money fail to satisfy? And why does happiness not increase in proportion to the amount of money you have? Why are the wealthiest people in the world also among the most miserable people in the world? Well, we've made the point who knows how many times in this sanctuary over the years, and we'll continue to make it. There is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. I'm quoting Blaise Pascal, of course, of whom Archer is not named, after whom he's not named. Um, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God through made known through Jesus you see even a billion dollars billions trillion it doesn't matter cannot fill the void in every human heart that only God can Here's another reason why the love of money brings misery. It's because it brings leeches. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? You know, ask any winner of the lottery, you know, and he'll tell you that he suddenly had all sorts of new friends. <laughs> had no idea how many friends he had. And new ones to boot. You know, people lined up with hands out to take what he has. Wealthy people know what this is like, even in legitimate ways. People of means watch as their money disappears to pay the person who cleans the house, to pay the people who make the food, pay the staff who maintain the vehicles, whatever it is. Money has a way of just taking flight, doesn't it? Right before the eyes of those who have it. And speaking of eyes, a third reason why the love of money makes one miserable is that it steals rest from the eyes. From the eyes of the possessor, verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You understand the picture here, right? A laborer, a person who works with his hands all day and for that reason may not be a very wealthy person, may not even have much to eat. That person goes to bed that night and sleeps soundly. But the wealthy person, in Solomon's illustration, with a stomach full of fatty food, goes to bed and he looks at the ceiling. What's he thinking about? Why can't he sleep? Is it indigestion? Perhaps. Why? Maybe because he overate. He has a tummy ache. 
Maybe, likely, because he cannot stop thinking about his money. He's, he's concerned about the myriad of ways that he might lose his money, who might come and steal his money, how his money must eventually fail him. That haunting thought in the back of every wealthy person's mind who rests on their wealth, it must eventually fail. The love of money causes lovers of it to think and to worry in just those sorts of ways. They get up in the night to check the foreign stock market numbers. They always have on their minds the value of their assets, their real estate, their gold, their silver. What's it worth today, this minute? Their money market accounts. Uh, They worry about guarding their money. They're consumed with concern, and money becomes the barometer. No, it it becomes the driver of their well-being. Then forth comes the devastation they feared. The money they so dearly hoarded and loved takes flight. It abandons them. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. You can hold on to money to your own hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. What, is, what was that bad venture? Now, don't we want to know? The preacher doesn't tell us, and I think it's probably all for the better that he doesn't. Because it reminds us that there are lots and lots and lots of ways to lose money. And maybe a ship foundered and his goods were lost. Or, or maybe he had invested in a, in a great flock of animals that was subsequently wiped out by disease. Today it might be a business gone bad or or a market failure. And what makes it worse in the preacher's story here is that the man has a son. Uh, And he has nothing to pass on to him is the point. Remember the proverb, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. This formerly wealthy man hasn't even enough to leave for his children. Because... He loved and hoarded his money, and and now he has none. It happens, and with devastating consequence. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, Tim Keller writes of a tragic string of suicides that followed the global economic crisis in 2008. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme, slit his wrists, and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive which, with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. You see, if money is everything, then money exercises power even over the life It becomes the master. 
and you, it's slave. And money makes a harsh, harsh taskmaster. And the sad thing is, fifth, no matter how much or how little you may have or hold, for how long or for how short, death will take it all away. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You get the point. For many, many years I kept my office here at the uh, church building where you all are sitting in that cry room there. That's where I spent hours and hours of my life looking out right out that very window. And I, I can't tell you how many days I saw, how many times I saw a funeral making its way from the city out to the cemeteries out in Philpott and Fordsville and so on. Watching the, the hearse and everybody pass by. Now, I know this is utterly cliche, but I'm going to say it anyway. Of all the hearses I saw drive past this place over the years, I didn't see a single one of them pulling a U-Haul trailer behind them. But then, as if to put too fine a point on it all, the preacher takes one look back from the funeral service to remember the life of the miser, of the money lover. Verse 17. How sad that in all his days he ate in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is what the love of money does to people. It actually makes people angry. You know people like this, don't you? I do. They love their money. They live for their money. And curiously, the effect is, just as the Scripture says here, they become angry people. They, their tempers shorten, they become cynical. It turns people ugly, spiritually and even physically. The love of money makes people sick. We could go on and on, but time escapes us, and we need to turn to the happy side of the preacher's lesson here. There really is a happy side. What do you suppose is his remedy for the disease of dollar hoarding, of putting one's trust and hope and confidence in money and its accumulation and what money can buy. What's the solution? What's the biblical answer? Is it to swear off money? You know, is it to enter into vows of poverty? Some have thought so. Some have taught so. and Some have done so. But that's not... What the Bible teaches. Money, wealth, hear me, are not evil. Money and wealth are not evil in themselves. In fact, to prove the point, we can go to any number of places in Scripture and find God giving wealth to His people. 
to his children. We remember from a couple Sunday evenings ago in our evening worship, the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians, he had learned to be content both in poverty and in abundance. Here the preacher teaches us the same as Paul in just another way, beginning at verse 18. And this is the lesson I mentioned earlier, by the way, fixed right at dead center of the passage. This is where all of this has been pointing. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil which one, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now here is wisdom, and for the fourth time now since we've been meeting with the preacher these uh, few months. He has made the very same point, hasn't he? The wisdom of God is for us to receive His good gifts for what they are. His good gifts. And to enjoy them to His glory. That's the wisdom of God. It's, it's God who has placed these things in your hands, food and drink and uh, drink in your cup. Enjoy them, Christians. Enjoy them. Receive them with thanksgiving. That is wisdom. Has God given you work to do? Then do your job and do it with joy. Be glad. That is your lot. Thank God for the task that he's given you to do in this world. And, and the strength to do it, and then go do it with all your might, working as unto Him. And if the Lord has put money into your bank account and, and wealth into your possession, Christians, enjoy them! That's the point. This is your lot. Thank God for it. Enjoy what he has placed in your hand. Enjoy these things as only Christians can. You know, the world cannot enjoy wealth. <laughs> this is the pathetic thing. The world is incapable of enjoying wealth. A thousand dollars or a million dollars, it doesn't matter. The world doesn't know how to receive these gifts or enjoy these gifts. You, on the other hand, you Christians, you receive and enjoy money and goods and wealth for what they are. God's kindness to you. His good gifts bestowed by a loving father on his daughter, on his son. You remember Proverbs 10, verse 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. And the fact that you recognize and you receive these good gifts from God as his good gifts, and mark this, the fact that you have the capacity 
to enjoy them. That you are able to enjoy them. That is God's good gift to you. That is his gift on top of his gifts, that he not only gives you the gifts, but he gives you the ability to enjoy them. Gifts upon gifts. Remember the, remember the miser? Angry and vexation, sick even, passing one miserable day followed by another miserable day, grinding through life. Not you. Not you, Christian. You read about yourself, don't you, here in verse 20. You will not much remember the days of your life. Why? Because God keeps you so occupied with joy in your heart. What a different way to live life. Utterly and astoundingly different way, isn't it? This is not stoicism. It's not sarcasm. It's not uh, Epicureanism, whatever. This is serious spirituality. This is serious spirituality. You want to know how to live the Christian life. You want to be a seriously spiritual person, then enjoy God's gifts. That's how you can be a mature spiritual Christian. Enjoy His gifts. Only I'll leave you with this piece of counsel. What a wonderfully spiritually minded woman of this congregation told me during the days of her life so often to this young pastor she would say before she passed into heaven I can hear her voice now John she'd say let's not love the gifts let's love the giver Amen.